Yes, yes, y'all. It is the new year and we have got new shit for you. Again, if you have not signed up for our newsletter, for Smart Money and Black's newsletter, then you are missing out, okay? We are always creating new spaces to give you all content that is smart, that is funny, that is Black, and our newsletter is no different. Also, at the end of the day, we are really trying to make sure that we can connect with y'all outside of the Zuckerberg limitations. So you want to make sure that you are still in tune, locked in step, walking to the beat of the drum of Smart, Funny, and Black? Make sure you go to smartfunnyandblack.com and sign up for our newsletter. It comes out monthly. It's filled with information, with comments with messages from me, etc., And it really is something that we are very proud of. So make sure you sign up for our newsletter called The Union at smartfunnyandblack.com. for another episode of Small Doses. Before we get into this episode, I want to give you a trigger warning that we will be talking about mental health issues, specifically related to pregnancy loss at some point in here. And I know that you know some folks may not want to be privy to that conversation right now, but I know that if you are somebody who has that as part of your story, I hope that at some point you'll be able to listen to this episode because I do think that Chloe's story and the stories in her book can be a source of healing, at, at the very least, a source of anchoring that this is not only your experience. And so, you know, just wanted to make sure that we put that trigger warning out there before we get into this episode. And with that being said, let's get into side effects of life, I swear. All right, y'all. Today's guest, okay, well, so normally we would like identify a topic that would be like more specific, but your book covers such a myriad of topics that I was like, you know what, let's just do side effects of life, I swear, because that really does encompass everything. And we have Chloe Dulce Luvuezo. Yeah. It's a very, I mean, that's a very full name. Thank you. <laughs> and I know that the audience is like, why is she having such a hard time talking? Because I wanted to make sure that I was able to read some of the book before I got on with you. And the portions that I read, I was like, this is my chest, Chloe, my, ch- my chest. Chloe, you, your soul is deep like the rivers. Mm. You have known rivers. Mm, that is a me. fact. And let me tell you, I know some of the women in this book and they have not known rivers, but you mm-hmm. have known rivers. So Life I Swear is your ah. book, Intimate Stories from Black Women on Identity, Healing, and Self-Trust. And I think that there's definitely like a lot of people who may pursue this type of literature, this type of you know conversation, you know, with the best of intentions. But what I noticed in this book is not only that there's a just the transparency that I don't think we really see often by mm-hmm. nature of just fear, or maybe sometimes it's like, oh, we don't know if people are going to really care about that, et cetera, et cetera. But also there's a poeticism mm-hmm. in the telling of the stories. And I appreciate that namely because as the narrators of our own stories, a lot of times in our effort to just get it out, we don't get to express it it's almost like you you put flowers on the pain. Um, yeah. 
in a beautiful way that didn't undermine it. Mm, it didn't undermine you. it. You you wrote this shit in papyrus on papyrus <laughs> with <laughs> with a quill pen, Chloe. God damn. Oh, thank you. So can you just tell me, I mean, I know you've answered this question a million times. So can you just tell me like what prompted this journey? Because it's one thing to tell your own stories. This is another thing to open up the space for other folks. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what made you feel like, you know what, we need to make this an anthology and not mm-hmm. just my own memoir? Yeah, no. First of all, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It <laughs> means the world to me that you were just so invested in it. And I don't take that for granted ever. But to answer your question, and I always, when I'm looking down, I'm looking at the book because it's like, oh, yeah, it gives you. me life. It's not your fault. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it took me a while. I had life, I swear, as the title of a work that I would one day do back in 2012. Oh, wow. um, okay. And it took January 1st, 2020 to be like, Now's the time. It's time. I think had I curated this book, especially written my own stories, it might have come off more like vomit. Um, Hmm. But I do think that there were many stories in here of my own that I've had yet to process. And I just am such an advocate of us before we're too hard on ourselves, just giving ourselves our stories just a little bit more grace. If we thought we gave ourselves some grace, it's probably still not enough. And so I love, I love how you said, you know, just put flowers on it. As I was in conversation with other women, because I was in a a stage in my life, a period in my life where I desperately needed community. And so I started to reach out to women whose experiences overlapped to some degree with my own, but were different enough where I knew that they could shift my perspective. Hmm. And I think that was probably one of the, the first times where I let my ego aside and I have a lot to learn. And I think in that season, I had just realized I, I don't know as much as I think I know. And so welcoming other women to be kind of teachable mentors to me through their stories, not through their advice, not through their blueprint, but just through their stories. Like there is some shift I know I'm going to make if I hear how I am not the only one that went through X, Y, Z. And so it just felt like a powerful project to do something alongside women whose work perspective or experiences, whose triumphs I admired. But I also admit that I've always loved writing. I've loved like the poetry of writing. I've always been an undercover writer. I don't think I've ever told many people. Maybe I was going to ask. That- I was like, you, yeah. you were a writer. Did you know you was a writer before but this? But there, there, the thing is, is until I was like, I'm coming out with a book, most people didn't know that I write. And so I think that just in my own quote unquote imposter syndrome, I don't know if I would have had the courage to do a memoir. Mm. So part of, feeling empowered, but then also so insecure was needing to almost hide behind the stories of other women. Hmm. Um, like I can only do this if I'm like woven into it. It's not a right. early book, you know? And so it just made me feel like covered and comforted and like locking arms. If I was able to do this, like coming out as an artist or as a writer alongside other women. Now that you have uh, joined us in authorship, 
do you, was it freeing? Like, I mean, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was. And I mean, I think I'm still, I mean, in some ways it feels like the book came out like a year ago, but it was also just yesterday, November. Yeah. Like two months ago. Um, I have gone through so many like inner personal introspective processes, I guess, throughout, like there's the writing, there's the editing right before the book comes out. I, everything. Yeah. And so now just being on the other side of it, it's almost like, I mean, so many of the stories I hadn't really talked to a soul about. And so of your own stories. mm -hmm. And so it felt like now my feelings have reigned, you know, and I feel like prior to releasing this book, I couldn't even handle the truth, but forcing myself through the process, I feel like I'm allowing people to see me naked. And it's kind of the difference between feeling like someone is walking in on you and you're naked and you're like, which I have been doing versus like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm here y'all, I'm here. I am here. And in the same way, applying like poetry to the words, applying poetry to the raw, honest transparency. And so it feels liberating and that there is nothing that you can tell me about myself that I have yet told you. And I think for um, a long time, especially in my teens and and early 20s, there were things, you know, related to childhood traumas or just like things that we didn't talk about that were either taboo or that were family secrets that made me feel overly protective of being seen. And so here I am, you know, I feel, I feel great. I feel great. It is like the, the weight of many of those stories are no longer mine, you know, and now they're less of a burden or a service. I told y'all, <laughs> I told y'all Chloe wasn't coming on here to talk about candy. <laughs> no. Chloe, I did a whole episode about candy one time. Just because oh I, was my like, I was like, we've been doing a lot of deep episodes. Let me just talk about these Twizzlers. Um, <laughs> there were two quotes mm-hmm. that I was like, I mean, the book is so beautiful that like, you don't want to, underline things or highlight mm-hmm. things, but mm-hmm. I got these like very handy dandy, um, see-through post-its. Uh-huh. Oh, amazing. Which I did not know Shandling. existed, but they're translucent <laughs> sticky notes. So you can like put it on the page and write notes without like that. disrupting the page. Uh-huh. Um, so first of all, I wanted to talk about how you separated the book. Like you have different mm-hmm. sections in the book. So you have the sum of my parts, bear witness, and piece it together. So can you tell me like these three sections, how they came to life under the heading of life, I swear. Yeah. Life, I swear. I mean, it's, it's not about any one thing. All of, uh, all things Just under, you know, the umbrella, it, everything's interconnected, everything. And you're fooling yourself if you try to compartmentalize your healing, which I tried to do for, for a while. So part one, I mean, just even the subtitle of the book is Intimate stories from Black women on identity, healing, and self-trust. The identity part really is some of my parts. And some, S-U-M, meaning the collective. I am made of all of these pieces that form who I am today. Um, Me, you know, personally, as I think about identity in terms of race, in terms of place, in terms of the friendships that raised me, being from multiple communities and cultures, I'm not 
any one thing. And I often would stutter at the question of where are you from? And everyone always has a, you know, growing up, I felt unsettled not having like that one answer that someone could easily pinpoint like, and okay, you're right. and digest. I get it. How and would you answer almost, that now? I got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, today, man, I am, I would probably start with, I am a tender woman. Um, if someone asks you where you're from or who are you, what are you? Okay. But where am I from? I think I'm Congolese American. Mm-hmm. My heart has always been in Niger, West Africa. That's where I was raised. Okay. But I have no family there because I was an expat there. I see. And I've been in D.C., you know, the last six years. And I feel like I would probably say for quick and easy, I'd probably say D.C. at this point just because that's where I'm raising my son. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm cementing home. Well, I really want to go to the DRC because I'm mm-hmm. obsessed with Bonobos. Mm-hmm. And Bonobos only live in the Congo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a place called uh, Lolaya Bonobo where okay. they, it's like a whole conservation effort to protect Bonobos and release them into the wild. And so I just feel like, you know, you, I love you, that. Like you can own the Congo part. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> because someone like me is like, oh, you're from the Congo? Well, let's talk about Bonobos. Let's go. Let's go. I feel you, though, because when I was growing up, like, my mom is from Grenada, but I was born here, mm-hmm. but I was raised in a household of a Grenadian woman. So, like, mm-hmm. that's the culture I was raised in. Right. But then when I was outside of the home, I'm a Black American. And, like, I was born in L.A., but then I grew up in Orlando, but then I spent, like, my formative years in New York. And so right. it used to kind of always feel, like, clumsy, when people ask, mm-hmm. like, where are you from? Like, you want to just be way. able to say, like, I'm from Detroit. What up, though? You know what I'm saying? Right, like, right. Because America is very much about, like, I'm from this place mm-hmm. right here. I know everybody here. I know all the slang here. I know this right. street, et cetera. And particularly, like, I was very immersed in hip-hop. And it just felt like that was such a intricate part of people's identity. And mine mm-hmm. felt splintered. And it was just right. like, you know, like, I mean, I'm from like these places. Like, I, you know, I could do all the best to pee with you, but also <laughs> shout out to Brooklyn, you know. So right, I feel you right. on that. And then you end up feeling like you're doing the work for everybody else, not you. Yes. And when you're from multiple places and each of those multiple places have their very distinct cultures and perspective and worldviews, and you're the melting pot of all of those. And I think, you know, wherever we sit on the spectrum of race or place or anything in between, I wanted to celebrate that clumsiness, you know, and give poetry to it. Um, So that's the sum of my parts. Um, Part two, bear witness, you know, the first section of that part is still I rise, you know, bear witness to all that I've been through, all that I'm capable of, all I don't know yet that I'm capable of, but I will rise. And the current of Adir, which is part of that, is really the current of goodbye and what grief looks like from different vantage points, whether it's a child or father or mother, brother. But for me, that's really where our resilience comes from. It's like what I've heard being termed as like post-traumatic growth. Hmm. And it's really like leaning into while strength can be viewed in so many different ways and can be demonstrated in so many different ways. It's 
the hardness and the softness and the balance of the two when we're going through something and surviving something. And then piece it together, P-E-A-C-E, it's really, I think of all of the pieces that we are. And even Maya Angelou talks about how one of her poems is around how our friendships help us gather all of the pieces that we are. Mm -hmm. And so if some of our parts, we feel fragmented by not being able to really articulate our identity in a wholesome way, we're able to like piece it together and find peace through that. And so the piece is the, speaks to the self-trust. It's like, while I, I might have stumbled, life might've thrown me a curveball or felt like it betrayed me. I will find peace by piecing myself together or being vulnerable enough to let my sisterhood help me do that. And then trusting myself and my discernment as I walk through womanhood and, you know, into the horizon. <laughs> what sign are you? Virgo. Oh. <laughs> Cause I'm a Virgo rising and I feel like we live tortured existence. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because we unwittingly seek perfection in an imperfect world. And mm -hmm. it's not even like we are consciously, it's just like we're attuned to this like aspiration of togetherness that just doesn't mm -hmm. exist. It doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, it doesn't. And I think that's what a lot of these stories help to demonstrate is just the mm -hmm. reality that like, you know, there's this presentation. You actually have a dope quote in here where you say, um, the world expects the strength of black women to be demonstrated through restraint of our true selves. Yes. And I think for a lot of people that that resonates in a very literal way. It's like, I'm going through this, but my strength is demonstrated by you not knowing that I'm going through this. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> like, and that's an expectation that like other black women hold to each other. You know, right. it's just kind of this understanding that, that our selflessness is really about like not having to put anyone through like what we're right. quote unquote, put anyone through what we're going through. Right. And then on top of that, just like, even if you take it to like the angry black woman of it all, you know, this mm -hmm. idea that like, I remember I had a boss who was like, you know, you need to smile more because you're mm -hmm. making the office think you're an angry black woman. I was like, but I, but I am, <laughs> but I, I am an angry black woman. So I'm not sure what is the problem. And he was like, you know, you just don't want people to think that about you. So, you know, in reading this book and seeing the, just the ways in which so many of all the, so many, not all, well, yeah, all the women in the book are really just telling stories that they may have also never told before either. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I yeah. think it's dope that you create a space for that. No, that, that hits. I've always been a perfectionist, I think up until deciding to, and just like fully writing out these essays. And I think I use perfectionism to cover up for not really wanting to look the the monsters face to face you know i think i tried to use perfectionism as a way to be like that's not my story that's not my story see 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 this is this is my story um when i was almost denying certain experiences mm. and what i thought they might have said about me in my most insecure seasons in life but i do think that the more more of us do it and try to you know, create this standard of perfectionism, the less permission we're giving other women to just be themselves, to just be raw, to just be real. I use that's not my story when I'm spiraling, mm -hmm. when I'm doing it, <laughs> when I'm catastrophizing. I'm like, I, 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 
that's not your story. You don't even know what that is. So stop doing that. So that's when I use that. But in listening to you, so you're saying like perfectionism for you would show up in places where like you didn't want people to look at you a certain way. I didn't want pity. I didn't want anyone to look at me as, as broken. But you've gone through so much shit. How are you? I know, I know, I know, I know, but it's really hard to take yourself out of yourself. Like, I think for me too, I, I didn't have a strong, I don't know if I didn't have a strong family. I moved around a lot Mm -hmm. growing up. There was nothing that felt like grounded the anchor. Yeah. To, to return to. And so, you know, as you know, I'm going through life and then like get punched from this side, yeah. get punched from this side. All I had was my self-talk to coach me into the next. And so feeling just like hyper insecure about the fragilities of life and being really unforgiving to myself of allowing myself to enter into certain toxic relationships or whatever the thing was that felt like it brought a lot of shame. If I seem all over the place, it's because, (laughs) because, you know, a lot of times when we do interviews on this podcast, like it'll be a very specific topic. And I also want to be respectful of like, some of the topics in this book are very, very heavy in a Mm -hmm. way that I'm just like, I don't want you to have to talk about it all the time. But we can talk about it. Well, I did a whole podcast episode about when I had a miscarriage and I had never mm-hmm. been through that experience before. And I, it took me a while. It took me a year to, to be able to like, okay, I'm going to like talk about it. And I did so with the intention of, I think what this book is about, which is the idea that there's a certain philanthropy and transparency, you mm-hmm. know, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a real giving that comes with when you share your story that a lot of people receive in a way that's very basic in the sense that it just makes them feel like they're not alone in their own experience. And right. so much of us in this like overpopulated world feel so isolated in our own mm-hmm. experience. Even if the other person didn't go through the exact same thing, it's just mm-hmm. like, oh, but you had something adjacent, got it. And right. you know, when you talk about the loss of your son, Molly, one thing I will say is that, again, you know you're a writer because... Honey, these words are, (laughs) this is not, it's very difficult to make pain feel pleasant, Mm -hmm. like when reading. That's the gift of poetry, is being able, like that's that's Toni Morrison's gift, is that you're Mm -hmm. reading about Piccola and you're like, this sucks, but it's so beautiful, but it sucks. Yeah, no, that was, you know, writing that story that I went to therapy. Because I was going to ask, like, how did you get to the place to write this story? Yeah, I went to therapy and it was interesting because that same summer I became friends or started to watch the stories of other women who actually went through similar experiences that same summer. But my therapist kept asking me, what are you going to do to memorialize Molly? Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? You know, are you going to plant a tree? Are you going to you know, make something like a physical thing. And I, I just, I mean, I thought about the, you know, tree planting thing. I thought about, you know, the necklace or something, you know, physical. Um, but this was my best way is through words and through a way that articulated it as if the loss was physical, but in spirit, 
he's still here. And I, I felt that really strongly through my son as well. And so it was almost, to me, cradled by the son, son is almost a, a contribution to my son who continued to talk about the baby probably up until this past summer for two or three years after. Wow. And so, yeah. And, and I mean, every day Molly's name would be in the home. And that was probably the most comforting thing. And so I think I just wanted to make it a story that was less about loss, but really honoring just the presence of the spirit, though, you know, the physical presence was never here outside of the womb, but it was a way for me to put it to rest and fully accepting that experience without looking to the light, literally the sun, looking to the light and not it almost re-triggering me to feel like I was doomed, like the sense of doom because of it, which in that moment, I very much did feel because I was at the same time going through a separation with the father as well. And so there was this cloud of doom of how do I get out of it? But if I feel like the sun is, God is literally always hovering over me, that's the biggest sense of comfort I could have in that season. I just remember, because I think a lot of people don't talk about how these types of tragedies, because that's what they are, Mm -hmm. can tear through the love that made them. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times, like, we don't see it coming. Like, it's, you know, it's an earthquake, right? It's a cataclysmic event that can, like, create all this. And I remember my partner and I having a very difficult time at the same time that I lost my pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And I remember a friend of mine being like, you need to leave him alone. And And I was like, I, if that's supposed to happen, that remains to be seen. But I was like, I I can't lose a baby and, and my love in the same week. Like Mm -hmm. I I just Mm -hmm. like, I mentally can't do it. You can't handle it. Yeah. You know, I did have an essay in here around the separation. It was called love after love. Mm -hmm. I purposely kept it separate than the essay about the loss of the baby cradled by the sun. Mm -hmm. I actually went through that separation a month and a half before losing the baby. And so when I lost the baby, we were not together, but you know, I, I think for me, one of the hardest parts about losing the baby and just that, I mean, they were all, all happened within two months. It's really hard to compartmentalize. That's what I was going to say. What am I not, yeah. That's not a long time. Yeah. And even though you separate, you still know that with inside you is a piece of this person that mm-hmm. you separated from. Mm-hmm. So that's a mind fucking mm-hmm. its own right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But that said, he had already left the home. He came back supported me. Like my breasts were so engorged. My body was still, cause it was Pregnant. 27 weeks. Yeah. It was responding as if I had birth. Mm-hmm. And so my breasts were so, I could not walk. They were about, you know, like m- melon right. size. So he stayed until I could be mobile again. But then after that, it was, you know, a quiet home and I was by myself and I didn't really know how to pick up 
the pieces because it, you know, it went from the idea of being family of four to then being me and my son. And it was therapy. It was alternative healing practices. And then it came to a point where I was like, I need to write this out because I realized that it wasn't just that story I needed to write out. It was all of the other stories that I hadn't been real with myself or other Mm. people about. It just felt like that was the Jenga piece that made the whole thing (laughs) crumble. Right, right, right. (laughs) And it just felt like less like, oh, I've always wanted to be a writer. I want to write a book. It felt necessary. It felt like I have tried all of these other healing, you know, resources and methods and, you know, done all the things. I still know that I am not hitting it on the nail unless I just detox everything so that I can, you know, start anew. You know, that was the moment of influx that felt like this is necessary in order for me to move forward. Was it instantaneous? Cause I know like I had a, when I had a breakdown and my therapist was like, you need to box. And I was like, box, why do I need to box? And she was like, because <laughs> like you have so much pent up anger that you need to kinetically release it. Like mm. not just creatively, like you need to like connect with something and literally Chloe, the first punch, I was like, oh, I'm healing. Like I could feel it immediate. So I wonder if like in terms of the writing. For sure. I'll tell you, like I I had, it was the first Sunday of January. It was January 5th, 2020. I had some girls over. I had a With a vision board party. (laughs) I had a DIY retreat with the vision boarding. I had a friend who came do sound healing for us. Another friend who did yoga. And then I was facilitating, they're like, let's set our intentions for the year. And literally in that session, I remember a girlfriend being like, you should write a book. And I was like, you know what? I think I will. And the next day, because it was a Monday, I just scoured the internet and I found a book coach. I hired a book coach and I had taken the year off. My job had given me the year off because I was supposed to get a year of maternity leave because of the baby. And when that happened, um, my manager was like, I still want you to take the year. And where were you working? I was working at a foundation. We know the foundation. Why are you going to act like we don't know? <laughs> say the foundation. We are. I'm, you, I'll say it if you don't want to say it. It's public. I was working at the, <laughs> the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And they are, I mean, I don't know any other organization or company who has been so great at supporting parents, men and women, fathers and men. So I got my, my manager at the time. She was like, I still want you to take this year and don't come back until you feel yourself. Like, just don't come back. You're not able to do your job. You're not able to Well, they got the money to pay you to do that. So, you know, I'm glad that they (laughs) are doing right by you. They did right by me. And it took me a while to accept it because I didn't feel qualified to take that year because I didn't have a baby. And I was supposed to be with 20 in your life. What? (laughs) Please. Please. (laughs) But it took me a while. And I, I mean, it probably took like two months of her being like, get off of your email, go home, check out, 
do something that you've always wanted to do. Do you think there's also a certain level of though, like kind of putting your grief into work, like to like, just, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? To like delay yeah. having to actually deal. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Absolutely. And I chopped that year up into like quarters, like the first quarter, I just stared out the window and I've never, I've always been, you know, in the, in the, the spirit of, perfectionism. I've always, we're busy. You we know, got things to do. There are things busy. to do. We've got to accomplish things with productivity. Yeah. Chloe, we got to be productive. Always. Always. We've got time to stare out a damn window. We got, and even if you are staring out the window, you're like, I'm cataloging what I'm seeing out the window. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, that was the first time where I was like, I don't, I don't have anything else to give. So then I worked on my body and, and health in a way that I hadn't before. Like what? Give us some I mean, I was working out like six days a week. Peloton workout or like running? Both. Both, but the elliptical has become my friend. But in that, I do realize, you know, as I got into working out, and I'm going to circle back to answer your, your, your last question, but I had lost so much weight. And I think it, I mean, I even had friends who called it out. Uh, I think I was almost upset with my body, resentful of my body. And, um, I was 20 pounds lighter than I am today. But you were a skinny little thing as it is. Yeah. I, I kind of disappeared for a second. But as that year was nearing its end and I had three more months, March 2020, April 2020, I was due back to work. So January with my girlfriend was like, you should write a book. I was like, that's how I'm going to spend my next quarter. Thank you for giving me, you know, homework. And I hired a book coach. I said 10 weeks, use it as my full-time job. That's all I want to do just 10 weeks. I want to write all my stories. I want to get all of these women on board. And it happened. You did this in 10 weeks. So I wrote my essays in 10 weeks. I got pretty much most of the women on board. And the goal was by March, I want to pitch a book. And I did. And that happened March, early April, 2020 at a time where, you know, the world was in shambles. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I never went back to the office. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just as well. Cause I, I mean, I definitely have people who are like, they're killing us. Bill and Belinda Gates, they the ones, they did these vaccines. They try to take us out. I'm like, I don't know. I yeah. did, but they're great <laughs> with maternity leave. That's, we know that <laughs> in love after love, you have a quote in love after love that y'all need to carry this quote. What is it? After learning the hard way, now I know that trust should be earned in droplets and lost in In buckets. buckets. (laughs) Can you please break this down? I feel like I understand, but I would love to hear you break this down. Yes. You know, I think to, you know, back to, I think everything really like the foundation of identity is so important. I moved around a lot growing up and I do like all of it comes together. I think everything is interconnected. But when I think about this idea of home and not feeling like I had that place or that family or that community as my go-to, you know, what do we do? We turn to relationships to be and define that home for us. Mm -hmm. And I, I had, and, you know, right out of college, I got into a very toxic relationship. Like in every single way. Because you know, I was about to ask, what do you feel like made it toxic? But there you go. I mean, he was older. I was 22 when I started dating him. He's 38. Oh, I know. Okay. He had all the kids. 
with all the baby mamas. He, you he know, was he, dating future. He, Let me find out. Claudia <laughs> was dating future when she got out of college. <laughs> Something like that. Um, but, you know, I think mo- even more than that, though, was just I was impressionable mm-hmm. and I I wanted to feel home in somebody yep. and was willing to compromise myself and was willing to compromise myself, especially because I didn't have a strong sense of self, you know. And so that happened and ended. It ended with probably the biggest straw of a relationship could end, which was got someone else pregnant while we were together. Someone I knew. Someone you um, knew? Yeah. She wasn't your friend. Was she your friend? No, but someone I'd been introduced to through him. And that is a whole, you know, she like my sister, you know, she like my sister. And then it's like, it's a whole nother story. But then, you know, that was a relationship that dominated my twenties. And then there was the relationship that I described in love after love. And that had its own, you know, toxic behavior attached to it. And I think when I was writing this particular essay, it was really like, I was just giving myself away, like free currency, you know, and really knowing that our currency is to be our energy, our time, our value, our worth is to be earned. And I don't think I had realized that until, you know, into my thirties. Right. If you're the kind of person that's like seeking connection in order to ground you, which I think is many of us, myself included for quite a large part of my life, like trust is a currency that we're wielding unwittingly, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, we are trusting them because we want them to like trust us, but they're not necessarily creating reasons to trust. It's like- No reason. And you know, (laughs) lost in buckets is like, I just want to break down that line because I think it's so important because we do have a lot of young women who listen and it's like Mm -hmm. earned in droplets means like trust should not be just one act and you're like, Mm -mm. okay, I get it. Yeah. It requires a lot of chipping away to create the masterpiece of you all's connection. And Mm -hmm. the buckets is that like, an act of distrust should not be a droplet because an act of distrust is a major definer of someone's character. And it's like, Mm -hmm. we oftentimes do the reverse where someone Mm -hmm. does something very little and we give them a bucket of trust and someone does something untrustworthy. And we're like, it's okay. You know, we rationalize, we make it okay. Justify anything. To make it fit our narrative that this is going to work. This is going to work because I want it to work. For sure. We will convince ourselves of anything. And I think we don't do enough of like, show me who you are and what you're made of. And let me not just do the investigation, but like, I want you to reveal yourself. And it takes time to allow people to reveal themselves over time in their character. But there's one line in here. If anyone's a fan um, listening of Jamila Woods, that Yeah, that song, Sonia, you know, I hadn't asked the right questions and her song now chimes on repeat when I think about what those should have been. What's your ideology? Do you love yourself? Are you healing your trauma? What's your concept of wealth? Do you love your mama? Like, it's (laughs) so crazy how the answers to those questions revealed themselves after we separated. And I'm like, oh, that's why he didn't. X, Y, Z, you know, right, and right, I, right. I think had I known, you know, we wouldn't be here, but 
the point is not to be hard on ourselves. It's just, let's make sure that we're rooting in ourselves so that we can trust our own discernment in vetting the right people and letting them through, you know, our gates. And I think so often we open the gates too easily. I, I have notorious. That was my, I mean, that I spent my life doing that because we, you know, mm-hmm. we seek a bond. Mm-hmm. But we don't realize that that's not love. It's just a bond. You said that there were stories in here that you felt um, weren't necessarily advice, you know, but they were freeing for you. What was a story that gave you an aha moment? Mm. I think, um, what, when I say not advice, I also, you know, in this like healing space or even as we talk about therapy and I think, you know, we're always, a lot of us are just, are really looking for answers. What do I do? You've been through a breakup. What do I do now Mm -hmm. that I'm going? And I'm like, I cannot, the point is get to know yourself. The point is get to know your needs. The point is like, learn to trust yourself. I don't believe there's blueprints. And so I'm often hesitant to provide advice, but it's, I can share my story. No, I mean, what it's like, what I mean is this, like sometimes people will will share their story and you're like, Oh, I didn't even think of that. Like as an option, like, did you have Mm -hmm. any of those moments in this when, you know, there was a woman Mm -hmm. who shared a story that kind of made you maybe change. You, you mentioned that there were times where you read a story that made you have a change in perspective or Mm -hmm. that maybe like had you consider something differently, even if you didn't necessarily land there, you considered Mm -hmm. (laughs) something differently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could probably go down the whole (laughs) list of what each woman has taught me, but I think the two that come to, to mind, one, Dion Ivory's story is also about surviving sexual trauma and just like their journey to joy in survivorship. Mm. Um, I think Lauren Ash, she's become a good friend. She's the woman behind Black Girl in Ohm, and she's done a lot of work on ancestral healing. And I think for me, that's really not something I ever explored before because both sides of my family have just always been very like decentralized. Like I I didn't know my grandparents on my dad's side. I wasn't close to my mother's side. There's a lot of things I don't know about the people who came before me. Um, there's a lot of stories of from my dad and from my mom that I, I just don't know. And so I think just the idea of our ancestor stories being like a resource for us learning ourselves, I've become fascinated by that since in terms of like filling the gaps of my own identity. Like I can't truly know why I have some of the habits I have or Mm -hmm. some of the perspectives I have without really understanding how my mom adopted those perspectives from her mother. And then unknowingly without sharing those stories or her, her traumas, I'm adopting them with, you know, going through the world thinking this is how we do things just because I've been taught by example, but not really have an explanation for it. Right. And so it, it's helped me, I think, give a relationship with my father a second chance hmm. and give my mom more grace. The parent work is a doozy in itself. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, you just, you realize, you're like, I guess you guys are humans. Right. And I guess you did have a life before me. 
but like get it together it's, right. it's very... because it's supposed to always be about me <laughs> I mean <laughs> I mean the way parents and children is set up that's right. the way it's set up you know it's like I didn't choose to be here you brought me here so by nature mm-hmm. this is the dynamic but it really um I've never ancestral healing interesting and so mm-hmm. oh I also want to shout out my home girl Isis Yes. Mia Isis came that out in New my York girl. together. <laughs> Mia Isis oh, has spent many a New York evening. <laughs> and um, you know, it's so crazy because, you know, about half of the, uh, not even half, I'm looking at the back and about a third of the women I knew personally who were, who were dear friends of mine, the rest of the women, I just love their work, you know, and, and, and I just love her writing. She is a poet and I just reached out and I said, Hey, I'm working on this project. I want to curate black women's voices. It's going to be amazing. I hadn't yet had a publisher. I was just like, just trust me um, through email. And they all said yes. And Enayafe, she is like my kindred spirit. And it's just been amazing to like grow friendship with her and other women just by the strength of let's say the stories that we've never said out loud before and let's see where it goes, where it goes. But she's been, um, she's been such a soldier and a champion of this work. I got to hit up ice. I mean, even yes. you're, you're like in the I'm like, give me ice. Isis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, when you meet people at different phases in life, you know, it's yes. like, there's just a different. And it's so crazy because I had never met her in person though. Between asking her if she could be part of this book and my first LA event in November, I had never met her, but we would FaceTime on the phone. We'd cry on the phone. And my first time to LA, I spent the night at her house and we had a sleepover (laughs) and it felt like I knew her from another life, you know? (laughs) Well, this is random, but... Isis is solely responsible for me being able to wear earrings longer than my stretched earlobe would allow me to because we were at a club in like New Year's 2013. And, and Chloe, I had this earlobe that was like, you would swear I put a gauge in it because it was like this big. It was a giant circle. And I was like, I can't wear an earring. It's going to rip it. She's like, girl, you got to get lobe protectors. That's what you got to get, lobe yeah. protectors. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, it's a sticker. You put it on the back of your ear. Them low protectors rode me out what? for like six <laughs> years until it finally ripped and I had to get it sewn up. So shout out oh to Ice God. and her writing yes. and her, yes. uh, her sisterhood and her low protectors. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I really commend you for putting this together and for creating space for this. And, you know, it's always just dope to see just the ways in which different folks find pathways to healing. And I think that's what so many people are really looking for. They're like, I've been tried this way. I tried this. I tried this. I tried this. Like what's another pathway, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think it's really great that we are just continuing to create more spaces of black women telling our stories without the overwatching eye of folks that have no real interest in our healing. You know, it's for commercial purposes, et cetera. And so I love the fact that you also put this together before you had the book deal. You know what I mean? Like this was a mm-hmm. vision of love before yes. it oh, had absolutely. been acquired. And yeah. Can you just, before we go, can you tell me how that process went? Like once you decided you wanted to publish, like how was the interest? Because 
black women, we are the number one buyers of everything. We're like the number one buyers of books, et cetera. But yet, it seems like we always have to convince. Yeah, um, so I'm curious yeah. what your experience was in that. I think it was just divine timing. So I set these the 10 weeks to do my essays and then started to invite other women or ask other women to share their essays. And and I, I curated essays in, in very different ways because not all of the women might say that they are writers. Right. And so I worked with them in different ways. But, you know, I didn't know anything about the publishing process, like anything. I know I'm very entrepreneurial. And so in my head, I was going to self-publish this. And I had actually created a whole spread, like a hundred page spread, because I knew I wanted it to be photography and design and a very like aesthetically driven. And the book coach in the middle of working with her, because I was like, I, I think I'm going to self-publish. Yeah. But I hadn't even thought about it or thought I would think about it until after the full project was done. And then I'd be like, okay, what do I do with this now? But in the middle of working with her for 10 weeks, she said, I think I want to be a literary agent. Will you be my first client? What? (laughs) (laughs) Serendipity. And again, like, I didn't even know what, as we were on the zoom, I was like, what is a literary agent? (laughs) Like I didn't, I didn't know like just the business of publishing, but she had been so connected to the actual drafting, editing, you know, she knew the stories very intimately, you know, when we were book coaching, she was also like therapist, you know? Yes, so they are. I knew that I could trust her. I also just, I don't know if I even had the bandwidth to like heavily research anyone else. So I was like, okay, I don't have anything to lose. So I let, me be her first client. And she was like, okay, well, we're putting together this proposal mid-March. She was like, okay, I'm going to start pitching this out every two weeks. I'll come back to you and tell you, you know, progress update. Don't hit me up in the in-between. Like, did you hear from She's like, every two weeks, that's it. Literally, she started to pitch mid-March. Two weeks later, she said, Harper is interested in the call. And I had the call and this was, you know, end March. I had the call or or first week of April and they said they were interested like on the call. I also think the timing related to the world and what was happening in spring 2020, Mm -hmm. everyone was amplifying. I call it the black square spring. Yes. The black square spring where people were just like, oh my God, black people have been suffering this whole time. Let's put up a black square. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, it's like, we're going to use your ignorance to amplify the work. Right. And so, I mean, whatever, I think there was divine timing in my book coach and her, you know, her pivot. Um, And then (laughs) the fact that it just, I just feel like this book felt on assignment for all of those Mm. reasons. And so I will say, they did say, we want you on that call early April. I didn't actually get a contract until like in my inbox until August. And so I I guess maybe that was, they were, you know, pivoting to like working from home and all of those things. But I also had heard them say, we want to move forward. We want to move forward. And so when I got the contract in mid August, they said, we want your final manuscript October 1st. So I had a month and a half of like editing, 
gathering all of the photos or getting some of the women photo shoots, getting consent forms from the writers and the photographers. It was like, I, when I show you my spreadsheet, my Virgo spreadsheet, <laughs> it was massive. <laughs> um, but between April and August, I was like, I'm not going to do more on this book until I have a contract. Okay. Like I, I just, I just felt very adamant. Like I needed to be on my timing versus theirs without a contract. Fair. But I, I made it happen. October 1st, I turned it in. Have you celebrated this? I mean, I do consider the book events celebrations because I did decide to do in-person book events. And so I had, I went to a number of cities, including LA and Oakland and Atlanta, DC, New York, and Denver. And each of them felt like curated community where, you know, there was tears, there was laughs, it was black women. We were celebrating black joy. Like they all felt like a celebration of not just my story, the stories that are in this book, but like giving space to the women who were there to feel seen loved, understood, and those felt like celebrations. The script. Uh, before we go, we have a segment called The Script where we basically give our reader, our listeners like supplementary uh, materials that go along with our conversation. So I'm curious, like, mm-hmm. were there any other books that you read that helped in this creating this process? Or are there movies or are there people that you follow, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, that you feel like help to enhance the work that, or pe- mm-hmm. people's ability to take it in, enjoy it, et cetera, et cetera? Wow. That's a really good question. Absolutely. I would say that um, I think the writing of Anayafe, I'm going to shout that out, all her words. I would say there's um, an organization there's an or- led by Dion Ivory called The Body, A Home for Love. I would say in the spirit of our earlier conversation about pregnancy loss, there's the work of Felicia Gangloff Bailey. She was a sistren in my personal journey and just her love story has just inspired me so much in the way that she sees love in partnerships and, and motherhood. I would say resources, um, a shameless plug, Life I Swear podcast. Yeah! <laughs> and I just say that because there are so many women who are not in this book, who are on the podcast, Great. Um, who I have had opportunities to have, like, to talk about breakdowns and breakthroughs. Yes. Of, you know, of the same thing of the book as well. And so if you're a fan of the book, I would encourage you to check that out as well. There you go, y'all. But yeah, there you go. <laughs> the last dose. I hope that you know that you made your own miracle. Mm. Because serendipity happens also by it's in re- it's in response to action mm-hmm. otherwise it's just you know something that's swirling out there and when you create art and you create space that's that's an effort in itself and the and the intention that you had in doing so in this comes from a place of healing for not only yourself but for others and so i hope that because I know, you know, you, you say in here, like the grief continues. And I know that in our own heads and in our minds, oftentimes, like we can get off course in terms of like what 
role we play in the things that happen to us. Yeah. You know, in blame, et cetera, et cetera. And then oftentimes in getting out of that, we forget to give ourselves credit for the role we play in the good things <laughs> that happen to us. And that they're not just, you know, it's not just some great big hand in the sky. You yeah. Know? Um, and so I hope that, you know, the celebration, like there's celebration in the example that you gave, but also like acknowledgement. Mm. Because as someone who has put words on page, it is incredibly difficult to do, particularly when it has to do with you, when it has to do about you. So yeah. you've been through some shit. Um, and I hope you're done going through some shit and I'm a cancer. So I've been trying not to cry for quite some time on this, but, but no, like for real, like you, it's not easy. Like, and I think there's something to be said for how easy this happened for you and you Mm. deserved it. Mm. You deserved it. I don't, you deserve something beautiful to come easily to you. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Yes. I'm going to And I go want you to like to my... own that. Hello now. Yeah. Like I want you to Thank own you. that. Like that, I deserve so this crazy. shit. <laughs> you know? And it's so crazy because that, that sentence, I deserve this, has not once, I never even thought to think that. There's a reason um, why my special that. is called I Be Knowing. <laughs> you deserve it. No, I appreciate Sometimes that. Sometimes I feel truly. like we... We get things done and we think like, you know, we can create, we create all these things around how it happened and whatnot. But sometimes it's just as basic as like, you deserve some good shit to happen to you in a very easy way. Mm. So, Mm. okay. Thank you. Thank you. So much love for you. This has been beautiful. I'm going to go to my pillow now. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all go out there and- I appreciate uh, you. I appreciate you too. Go out there and get (laughs) life, I swear. Chloe Dulce, Luvuezo. Mm, yes. Okay, I was like, get it right, <laughs> Lueso. Um, when you make a trip to the Congo, please let me know because I want to go. I will. And I yes. want to go see Bonobos. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, again, everybody, uh, you know, you want to get connected. Life, I swear, intimate I stories from Black women on identity, healing, and self trust. Well, thank you. Keep going, keep speaking, thank keep you. making space, and keep healing. Thank you, Amanda. No doubt, Kelly. <laughs> 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 A podcast network.